So you guys play rock and roll? <laughs> or is it like skiffle? You guys are a rock and electric, roll group? Electric folk. It's rockabilly. Yeah, me and Alex are here with the electric folk rockabilly band Wolf Parade. We've got uh, Arlen, Dan, Spencer, the whole gang. What's up? And we're here to talk about their new album, uh, Thin Mind, the fifth full length, guys. Yeah. And uh, what's going on tonight? I mean, it feels late over here, but that's because you guys are on the Pacific uh, coast right now rehearsing for this tour. That's right. We're uh, we're on Vancouver Island. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, just getting ready. Island island time. We're on island time. Yeah, that, that phrase refers to Vancouver Island for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it was invented here. So you guys have had uh, plenty of troubles with the snow and everything out there? Yeah, this island... Um, so this happened to us uh, last year when we were writing and recording the album that we're about to tour, because uh, that's how long it takes to uh, put a record out a year. <laughs> um, but when we were, yeah, when we were out here last year writing and recording, uh, Vancouver Island got hit by like an unseasonable, uh, unseasonable dump of snow, and we got sort of locked out of the studio for what, like five days, six days, or something like that. And exactly the same thing happened uh, this time around, too. Same studio, uh, same problems. Yeah, I think it happened in, like, February. And then the same reaction from the locals of being like, whoa, it's, look, there's so much snow. This is so not normal for this time (laughs) of year in this place. It sounds like a video game where they're NPCs and they just say the same thing each time. It's absolutely like that. It is. (laughs) Greetings, traveler. Uh, Anytime you walk past a certain screen, it like triggers the same snow event and you guys keep getting surprised by it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. There's a wizard in a cave nearby who controls the snow. Maybe you should talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You guys keep ignoring the quest to resolve the snow problem and instead you're just like, damn, it's so tough to Every time here. we do this level, it's just more snow. Yeah. We just hang, our, our, our thing is to not accept the quest and just stay on the one screen until, until the game is just like, fine, all right. You can continue. <laughs> but it's good. The snow keeps us on our toes. We 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 schedule in like a certain amount of days that we're gonna work, and then we cut like five out of them for snow, and it makes us work even harder for the days that we have left. Yeah. Um, before we started recording, Spencer, you were just like pontificating about what would happen to this band if those days were used productively. Yeah. And I really don't know. I think we might even be broken up again already just from like too much spare time to, <laughs> to talk and fight. Baker. Yeah. Or we'd have like a whole other album. There's really no way of knowing. But yeah. somehow we... But the, the snow might be saving you from yourselves. Then. Yeah. We're a real bare minimum band, I think. And this is like, this rehearsal session has been another example of that. Like we're we're totally ready to go, but we're... We're only that. We're just ready to go. We're not like we're not any better prepared than just ready to go. Yeah, I'm, that's can, probably the best way to be. You like can, you don't want to be over prepared to the point where you're already just like zoned out because you've played the song so many times in a row. It's true. It's true. But you don't want to play like shit either. So no. you want to be right in that middle ground where you're kind of sweating a little bit. That's totally true. Yeah, you keep it fresh. And uh, it's it is it's actually a really good place to be. Um, to be like a little bit scared when you're on stage. It keeps it fun. It's when you go on stage and you're not nervous, then it's it's a little bit fucked up. Then you're kind of um mi- Yeah, I agree with maybe that. Maybe you should like, be rethinking what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. There's a sweet spot to be where you don't want to be like distracted and feeling bad, but you do want to be on your toes and like mm-hmm. Yeah. It should be surprising to you too to some extent. There's a really uh hard to hard to define balance between um just like muscle memory you know being comfortable playing something and singing it and be and be and also at the same time having enough mental space to like engage the audience and put on a show there's a there's a weird sort of liminal space between that and just being an automaton on stage you know like Mm -hmm. uh, for sure and engaging with yourself like engaging with the audience but yeah. also like uh, kind of with your own uh spirit to to be like yeah i'd like to to recognize that you're on 
stage doing a thing. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Like you're not just like zone out completely and and watch your hands do the work. It's like to actually yeah. um, appreciate where you are. And yeah, you need doing. to be present and yeah. yeah. So to achieve that state, Wolfraid approaches almost every task like uh, like a three man team of firemen who live in the you know they're all asleep in the same bed, and then every time the fire bell rings, they take off their sleep hats and like <laughs> run around the room and slide down the pole, yeah. directly <laughs> onto the stage. Directly onto the stage. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. But then we yeah. know how to work those hoses. We've that's right. Yeah. We're experts at working the. Give hoses. me the hose. I'll put out the fire. That's right. It's our motto. Give me the hose. <laughs> I feel like we should circle back around to some of the stuff because I feel like there's other things we could talk about when it comes to like live shows and this tour. But since we're technically talking about this new album, maybe we should uh, get started on that. I, I want to like start with a big take. And I'm curious what you guys will think of this take. Big take? But out of all the other Wolf Parade albums... This one to me is the most like Expo '86, and I don't know if you guys feel that way. Oh, slow down, slow down there. That's a big take. We haven't that's, heard that one yeah, yet. That is the hottest take I've heard yet. I really, I think so though. Like, I actually, I went back and listened to Expo this week just to make sure that I believed that for real. Okay, I'm, <laughs> and I'm, I really think it is because like there's a lot of obviously maybe it's like less. Um, you know, like fewer overdubs or like smaller band, obviously, but yeah. I think that it's like jammy and there's a lot of um, sort of instrumental passages where everyone's just like playing a riff kind of. Okay. Um, I don't know. I, I feel that there's like some similarity there. Interesting. I, I always think of, I mean, obviously I'm totally biased, uh, but I always think of Expo not in a negative way, but as like kind of a monolith, you know, like like a, just a big block of gray stone that's very dense because um, the songs are pretty long and there's dynamics on the record, but not a lot of dynamics, you know, and yeah, and the songs, and maybe, uh, the songs are really like maybe this one part, 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 you know, there's. You, you can hear everyone's parts. Mm-hmm. That's true. And maybe they're like less conventional structures in some ways. Like, I don't know. I, like The songs on this one are somewhat shorter, but there's still a few of them on this one that are like relatively long. Yeah, that's true. Um, true. We can't... There's no. something about the vibe of it that I just feel that like... Uh, the previous album to me was like kind of like a sampler of like everything you guys do of like, oh, if you want like a three minute like concise pop rock song we got a couple of those you want like a six or seven minute kind of more jammy one we got those right right that one was like kind of all over the place and this one i think is like more focused but also more dense in a way to me i don't know Hmm. it's i think it's a weirder record than than cry like it's it's definitely yeah absolutely that's that's partly what i'm trying to say i guess that like i think this one seems like it reveals itself to you on more listens yeah. Whereas Cry Cry Cry, there's a few really immediate songs. Like probably the first three or four tracks are like super immediate where you kind of get them right away. Yeah. And this album, like the whole thing, you kind of just need to like vibe on for a while. That's probably a good thing. But as compared to Expo, it's, one thing we really tried to do on this record was uh, edit ourselves and, like you said, make the songs shorter. We could have left things, and there was a certain point in the writing process where the songs were kind of ready to go and probably even more like the Expo 86 songs and that they kind of like meandered on for a while, uh, like a little longer yeah. than they needed to. And where when we made Expo, we didn't bother um, like curbing those impulses. This, no one told us to stop. <laughs> yeah. And now when we <laughs> listen back to those, they're good examples for us of what not to do in terms of like length and repetition. Like I'll hear a song from X forty six, and for the first three quarters, I'll be like, "Oh, cool! This is a cool song." And then the last quarter, I'm like, <laughs> "Why are we still playing? Like, why isn't this over yet?" And then, so I think we brought that experience to this record in in hopefully an effective way. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Like like you're saying, the song lengths are all definitely shorter, and the structures are more like tight and conventional in a way. Yeah. There's maybe a couple exceptions though. Like Forest Green kind of like jams out at the end for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we'll never stop doing that kind of thing. We can't help it. 
it's just like it's yeah. our own. We we write in these little uh, releases for ourselves. These like um, these moments where we get to just stop, sort of thinking about what happens next and just jam out. I think we're always going to write those parts into the songs just selfishly. Yeah, I think it's what you guys do well. Is like when everyone is playing a riff, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of <laughs> bands where like there's one person, like there's one riff in the song and everyone else is kind of like the background. But Wolf yeah. Parade's thing is just everyone is doing a different riff that all like gels together basically. Yeah. Or occasionally just doing the same riff together. Yeah. Like I, I enjoy mm-hmm. that. Or occasionally everyone doing riffs that don't gel together <laughs> at all. But yeah, it's stubbornly but it just matter. keep doing them anyway. Yeah. Just push through to the next part. <laughs> yeah. I'm all about riffs and hot licks. Hot licks. Yeah, you guys course. need more hot licks. Oh, shit. There are, you got us. Yeah. You f- I'm going to blame that on Dan. Dan needs to do spot. more parts. Through, like, wiggly, 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 well, wiggly, the Caro, Dante was the hot lick meister. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> if you ever, like, on Cry and Expo, like, he's the guy who's laying down the fucking sweet sauce. It's true. You guys yeah. should make a record where the review includes the phrase guitar pyrotechnics. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. didn't Grail, you know, Grail Marcus, the, uh, he's like a famous music kind of archivist journalist guy. Yeah, he said yeah. that, uh, yeah. uh, it was the village voice that, uh, Dante's lick in, uh, what was the song? I was in Valley Boy. Boy. Valley Boy was like uh, like a man like a caveman discovering fire for the first time or something like that. Which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> Close enough. It's kind of like pyrotechnic. Yeah. That yeah. makes me imagine him like looking at his guitar really confusedly, like what the fuck? Yeah, just fire. Staring at his hands as they make shapes and then better shapes, faster yeah. shapes. That's what I do on stage. Yeah, that that first caveman wasn't good at fire. <laughs> Yeah, he sucked at fire. It took like two hundred thousand years. Have you guys ever? um, Have you guys ever seen the demos for Fire? They fucking suck. They're interesting though. I like Fire's early stuff. I think it's stronger than later Fire. It's just a bunch of sparks. Yeah, Fire went too mainstream. Now I can go turn on the stove, and I don't have to do any work. It's too easy. There's no challenge to get into Fire now. Yeah, I miss when you had to go to a record store and search through the records and find something that was on Fire. Yeah. And carry it back on a torch. <laughs> no, you had to buy all like the heathen um, blasphemous records and set them all on fire to make a point. That right. was when it meant something. Yeah, I want to go back to a time when fire meant something. You know. <laughs> hey, I, I lit a fire when I got home tonight. It's, it means something in this, in this old house that I'm in. I'm looking at it right now. I'd be- I've, I've also got a... F- I've got a fire going in this Airbnb, but I literally just picked up a remote control and did a few button presses, and now I've got a, <laughs> I've got a roaring natural gas fire going. Oh, I was hoping you were going to say you just lit a bunch of plastic stuff on fire, and like there's like green fumes coming off of all this plastic you torched. Yeah, that's how yeah. Dan recycles. You just burn yeah. it. That's how you, that's how you recycle. Right? Uh, yeah. It's ash, uh, ashes to ashes, plastic to sky. <laughs> simple. Simple, really. Fire makes things disappear forever. This is why Canadians are more environmentally conscious than us. They recycle everything, even their plastic, by burning it. Yeah. Just returning it to the earth. Yeah, we don't have any waste. <laughs> where it came from. Yeah. And it smells Return good, it to too. The sky gods. It, it does. I like Sometimes to, if you smell it, you get dizzy. It's true. I like to stand directly over my recycling um, as I'm recycling it and just breathe deeply. And by recycling and, uh, it, you mean burning it. Yes. Yeah, okay, because there's no other way to actually recycle. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I've got a couple of just random thoughts about specific songs here. Um, I'll just go in like no particular order. Uh, Fallen to the Future is one I wanted to talk about because I feel like Arlen, that's like a secret reggaeton song. <laughs> that beat. Yeah, that's what, I don't know what kind of Wolf Parade classic kind of beat for me. Just that, you know, off kilter. Uh, kind of thing. I use it quite a bit. Like um, uh, we built another world, gets into that kind of beat and stuff. And uh, I think when we were working on that, we were kind of feeling like like a, it was like a song off "Low" by David Bowie, like a, oh, like, nice. a, like a song that kind of kind of meanders. Like it's got kind of a verse and kind of a chorus, but you can't really tell what's what. And then the song just ends. And you're like, yeah, oh, I okay. can see that. You know, 
And on that one, Spencer, I'm curious what you're doing in the beginning of it. It sounds like maybe like a really wild arpeggiator or something. Like that's just I, I couldn't tell exactly, but it's it's very cool. In in the beginning of Fall in the Future, like you mean the bass line? Do you mean the low stuff or the high stuff? The higher stuff. I don't know. I'm just there's no arpeggiator. I'm just playing notes. I'm just Oh, you're just kinda like I'm just, playing super fast. I'm just wailing on notes. Messy stuff. It's all natural. Okay, oh, it's wow. like the yeah, it's a natural arpeggiator natural, that is just fast playing. Natural hand I think it's work. that like kind of roadsy sound. Oh, that doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo. It's got kind of like some crazy effect on it, so it makes it really, especially with the guitar, it all kind of There's no effects. I'm just that fast. That's all it is. Just dry. Wow, Arlen's underestimating your chops. Yeah, man, he doesn't know. I'm playing. I'm just kidding. Yeah, there's like, it's like a piano sound with some flanger or something on it. Um. And then and the bass, but there's no nothing's arpeggiated, just just hitting hitting lots of notes. Since Dante left, me and this my my note uh, count has gone up in this band. I just like every song is just like a bunch of notes. Since Dante yeah. left, all three of us we're just like really busy all the time. All the time, all the new stuff's like. That's the way to be in a three-piece for yeah, sure. Yeah. Like everyone's, you got to find a way to fill that space. Yeah, you know? but we filled no, it like too much. Everyone's at ten all the time now. Yeah, nobody's slacking <laughs> off. And it's like, I mean, with that song in particular, that song's a really good example of this feeling. But uh, like playing even some of the older songs as a three-piece band, the only thing I can think of is like you know those insane like uh, Mario Maker speed runs. Yeah. <laughs> It's just like that. Like playing the song is just like that. It's like, okay, I have to duck. Uh, fire is coming. They're going to jump on this thing. I'm going to throw this thing over here. I'm going to jump this far, duck again. And, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're you're doing the Wolf Parade catalog on hard mode now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, uh, you've made that comparison before to a video game. And I, I agree. I always think of it as like, like a gymnastics routine or something. Like... <laughs> Like getting ready for <laughs> live totally music true. is so much like sports and so not about creativity anymore. <laughs> like unless you're playing music that has a lot of improvisational elements in it, like if you're just kind of playing the parts that you've already written, then I feel like rehearsing for a tour is so much like training for like if you're like a, an Olympic class diver or something, like you just do it over and over again until you can get it right. And then you hit yep. the stage and try to not let your nerves get the best of you. And um, that makes it sound like clinical and not fun, but it's actually still really fun. Just as just like the diver in the Olympics is totally having fun. Yeah. But any any touring too, musician like, that tells you otherwise is, I think, fucking lying. Or lazy. <laughs> or they're lazy. They're just uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, they're just they're just strumming open chords. You know. I think, and you guys can tell me what you think of this, but I think it's nice to have a reason to like revisit old shit and change how you play it. Yeah. Cause it kind of keeps yeah. that fresh anyway. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. We do that almost every time we go on tour. There's, I don't think there's been one tour that we've ever done as a band where we haven't taken a look at something that we've, we've written and tried to either improve on it or maybe we're subconsciously just keeping it interesting for ourselves, you know? And I've but learned these. I've relearned these songs. Spencer, Spencer gets the worst of it. Um, new keyboards and or missing members, like it, a lot of that stuff, falls on you. So, yeah, I've relearned these songs. I don't know, three or four or five times now over the years. Like just like Dan said, <laughs> like my gear will change. So then you learn how to play them on a different setup, which changes like where my hands go. Like my muscle memory has to get eradicated and then rebuilt. And then Dante left, and suddenly I had to to take over for all the low end stuff, which changed the way I played all the songs that he played bass on. And not to complain, it keeps it it keeps me busy for sure. Uh, but yeah. it's is it more or less like a fun challenge, or I mean, what's like the stress to fun ratio? Is it a good ratio? Stress to fun, like it's like three to seven. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I think that's a healthy ratio. Yeah. No, it's it's cool. Well, it's it's rewarding because now, really, literally within the last couple of days, I'm back at a place where I can really lean into the songs without having to think too hard all the time. I can kind of relax a bit and listen to them and like just watch Arlen's 
drumming and, and get really tight with him and hear how the songs have evolved with the three of us. And that's like one of the funnest parts about getting ready to play live music is when you can hear that it's good. Uh, yeah, for sure. And you can step back a bit and, and hear it objectively. Um, and I'm, I'm back in that place. And it's rewarding because I get to do that over and over again because I get to keep relearning them. Whereas if we were just like the same four-piece band for 20 fucking years playing the same songs, like I would be long past that part of the process. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of like what we were getting at earlier. If you like kind of check out. Yeah. It's more fun to be on stage if it's at least moderately challenging. Like, yeah, you don't want to be getting lost like, oh, fuck, what am I doing? But you do want to be moderately challenged of like, mm-hmm. you'd be at the this pro- is new again. You'd be at the part of the process where uh, everybody would agree that it was a good idea to do like a reggae version of a song or, you know, <laughs> yeah. or you're like, I'm going to bring the 12 string on tour and we're going to have three songs in the middle that's just like solo acoustic stuff. You know, I, Yeah. Or we're going to start doing Prince covers or whatever. Yeah. Hey, let's do a bunch of that covers. That would be pretty sick, actually. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> we, used to do, we used to do covers occasionally way back when where we kind of really didn't know the song. Like what? <laughs> and the whole part of it would be just kind of... Oh, knocking on heaven's door? Knocking on heaven's door. Like, I, we never, I don't think we ever practiced that. I was like, okay, we're doing this on stage. <laughs> we didn't even know the and words. Everyone kind of knows how it goes. And like, let's just, let's just, let's make it happen. Let's I still work. don't yeah. know the words to knocking on heaven's door. And we play that in front of a lot of people. Yeah. We just knew the chorus. We knew the chorus and most yeah. of the chords. We opened a set once with that song. <laughs> yeah. In North Carolina. Oh, funny. In North like, Carolina. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's YouTube footage of it. Of, and, and I'm pretty sure you can hear somebody saying, are they playing knocking on heaven's door? <laughs> Weird call. Me and Joel, like our, me and our friend Joel always talk about like um, set list where you could tell the band is either scared or not scared. Like, right. you know, the most scared thing you can do is like play only the hits and like play it really safe. And then a not scared move is something like that of just opening with a cover you barely know that no one's expecting you to play and just being like, fuck it, I don't care. Yeah, Maybe we were a little too not scared back then. <laughs> that might be good though. I think it's it's commendable as long as you're basically pulling it off. Yeah, I think. I think too, the, I feel like when you do like something really weird, the audience gives you a certain amount of leeway. Yeah, as long as you're not, um, as long as it's not- uh, Like antagonistic. Sort of, Antagonistic, antagonistic psychosis. Yeah, like you've got a window too. It's like you've got maybe a five-minute window, and I think if it kind of goes on too long, of just whatever, just kind of fuckery, people are just yeah. It's gonna, it's gonna, the crowd's gonna turn on you, and then things are gonna get bad. That makes me think of like when Bradford Cox from Deer Hunter played My Sharona for an hour one time because someone (laughs) heckled him. Like that's uh, taking it to the extreme for sure. That's amazing. It's just like performance art at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good riff. That's a good riff. (laughs) I found the Knocking on Heaven's Door video, April 21, 2006. Well, the show was on 420. Nice. Nice. I'm looking at the comments, and there's a comment from nine years ago that says, I never got to see them live. Fuck my life. And then someone replies, too late, man. They're on indefinite hiatus. (laughs) Luckily, I got to see them a few weeks ago. Someone should reach out to that guy. Yeah, the guy who wanted to fuck his life and be like, "Don't, don't fuck your life. We're back. Fuck your life, man. I hope you didn't fuck fuck your life, dude. I know it was a while ago. I like that that comment comment is under that specific video, not us like performing a song that we wrote. Well, you know, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, like of all the things to. I never got to see this cover band. There's actually zero mention of knocking a head in the store. (laughs) Let's see what else do I got here? A couple other songs, maybe. Oh, Dan, one that I was going to say, but I think this is me just being wrong, is uh, for Static Age, I was like, oh, is that a reference to like the lyrics in, in Modern from that Operators album? But then I went, I went on Rap Genius, and it claims the line in that song is Static Haze, not Static Age. So I think I was just wrong. Yeah, it's Static Haze in, in Modern. Damn, Rap Genius yeah. was right. Yeah. Fuck. I like- but then it leads me to a still valid question, though, of do you feel like doing that last Operators album influenced where you were at when you were doing this one? Because they were really pretty close together, you know? Definitely. When you yeah. worked on them. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, we'd started writing Thin Mind when Operators was wrapping up uh, wrapping up Radiant Dawn. 
and then it kind of sessions kind of overlapped to the point where Arlen recorded the vocals for Despair and uh, I think Come and See at the same studio we were writing Wolf Raid stuff at. And oh, nice. Yeah, and Arlen Arlen was you know engineering and producing that record, so uh, and my I felt like I'd honed my synth skills a lot at that point, so a lot of that stuff kind of bled bled in, which was nice. It was actually nice. It felt like a, it's hard to explain. I felt like I was a, a working musician in a way that I don't feel if everything is really compartmentalized. You know, like like if there's like six months between or a year between working on a project. Yeah. Like, it felt good. You guys have any power ballads on this one? <laughs> that's, For that's the ladies? You know, Wander, Wandering Sun is kind of a power ballad, I feel like. and um, As kind as, as you kind can. As, you, as kind as you can is definitely a power ballad, because it's got those big tempo changes. And it's like a fucking meatloaf song, almost. That's how you get those lighters in the air. That's a really cool chord progression, too. We always kind of do a November rain. There's, there's always got to be like a... I feel like that's one of the settings of Wolf Parade is November Rain. Man, did I ever tell you, when I was in music school like a hundred years ago, I canvassed like uh, like my my fellow students. I was tried so hard to get us to recreate November Rain on stage because <laughs> there was this thing you had to do every Wednesday <laughs> called performance techniques where you just had to like perform for the whole student body and all the faculty and then they would critique it. But it didn't really matter what right. you did. right. And I was like, let's do November Rain because there's so many instruments involved and there's like guitar majors and I would just like play piano and sing and be Axel and there's like flute players for the flute parts. Not one person was into doing <laughs> November Rain. What a bunch of nerds, man. What a what squares. Ninnies, yeah. Ninnies. It's not that hard of a song, is it? I doubt it. I yeah. Be. No one wanted to waste their time learning November Rain with me. They didn't it's all think vibe, it'd be man. It's funny. all vibe. Yeah. So now I you're getting your revenge vibe. in Wolf Parade by having like a November exactly. rain Exactly, like every album's <laughs> got to have a little November rain. Yeah. Yeah. As Kind As You Can is pretty, it's probably pretty close to November. I bet you if you lined up the structures, like did that thing where you overlap the sound files, I bet you they match up pretty closely. <laughs> 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 they speed up and uh, stuff. Because November rain speeds up at the end too. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. It gets to the kind of marchy part and then yeah. it's like... And yeah. we speed up into our little disco part. And Will Parade's disco is everyone else's march. That's that's our march, is our disco. Guys, that's right. <laughs> Except we do actually just a straight up marching part. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We, we got told. March, we got told uh, about a year and a half ago on tour that someone was like, "I really like your music. It's really militant." And that's something that had never occurred to us before <laughs> that we were like a militant sounding band. And now that occurs to me all the time when we're playing our stuff. Me too. Yeah. In a shitty way. Like, I don't want to be yeah. a militant band, but. <laughs> Swingless, marching, <laughs> angular, <laughs> militant. Vaguely angry music. Vaguely angry, yeah. You're malcontents. That's right. Um, but to talk about the synths, you're, Dan, you're going back to uh, you making the Operator's record right before this one and, and then Arlen producing the operator's record that was really apparent to me uh in a way that we haven't even really talked about before but because dan and arlen really got into all the different synth sounds on this record and it was funny because it was parts that i was playing it'd be like my parts but there i was sending like all this midi information to the computer and then we would go back in and like retroactively change the sound but it was always dan and arlen making the sounds because um, I'm actually design. yeah I'm actually really averse to to most of that world it's like I don't get a kick out of it at all and I, I prefer to just like focus on playing and uh and the and the note choice and shit like that and then when yeah. all the computers come out I get kind of like overwhelmed and just stare at my hands <laughs> and go quiet yeah, yeah I think that's like a normal way to feel because it's like the tyranny of choice there's too many options exactly exactly so I think that's an interesting process because you really are like opening yourself up to a lot of uh, like paralysis when you have that many options yeah I kind of so I'm kind of curious how you made that you made that work without getting too paralyzed of like what changing up the MIDI tones and stuff. I, I think Dan and Arlen are actually quite good at it and they have they, they've 
maybe through the operator's record, uh, reach some sort of way of working together and, and making those choices without having going too far down any rabbit holes. It, it didn't take too long or anything. It's just a part of the process that I stepped away from. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of sound auditioning, but I think, Spence, like what, you, what you're saying, like the note, the separation of note choices and then, um, and, and then like the busy work of like picking patches or like shaping stuff, but not shaping it in the DAW, shaping it, shaping synth tones that you're outputting MIDI to. I think that's, it's kind of a neat way to work. Like with, with the operator's record, you know, a lot of the note, cho- I, I've made a lot of the note choices, but I didn't really have a lot to do with uh, the sound design on some of the songs. Yeah, it is neat. It, uh, because, because then you have basically a different interpretation of your work presented to you. The hard part is if you don't love it, then you then you have to make a compromise. But that didn't really happen too yeah. much with this record. I think the only person who really got the shit under the stick for the synth stuff was the producer, was John. Because, uh, you know, we wrote, specifically, like, we wrote Against the Day, which has a vibe. And, you know, Spence, like, you built those ar- arpeggiators in... in in your keyboard and uh, like the, like the sound palette was already there before we started outputting stuff to different to different outboard gear and the sound palette was super uh mid 80s fm synth digital stuff yeah. and our and our producer john uh he you know he made like a lot of like classic sort of pacific northwest riot girl records like grunge records and he would have been working with bands who were using these same patches in the eighties and just fucking hating it. So, yeah. <laughs> so he specifically, he specifically was upset about, uh, like this Shakuhachi, like it's like a classic, like almost general MIDI patch, yeah. you know, which I love we, the sound of, I love it. It's like a real, too. like Roland D 50, you know, uh, synthesis era, like, but you know, Star Trek next generation soundtrack. Yeah. Very breathy. Yeah. With breathy, with <laughs> breathy is exactly right. It's so breathy. But he was there for the first time around, right? So he's like, "Fuck, are yeah. you serious? We have to, yeah. have to it's, mix." His like, his like, funny. Ears were were kind of burning up a little bit, being like, "Oh, it's like you guys really want that?" Yeah, you like, sure? Yeah, you? like it sounds kind of like campy to him in a way. Yeah, yeah. It would be, it would be like. Yeah, somebody 20 years in the future, like a producer 20 years in the future being like, oh, you guys are into like triplets on hi-hats? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, we were, we're just like, the kids love this shit these days. These are, these. everyone loves these keyboards now. And, but know, we just actually we really love play. that specific sound. It's like, it's like pan flute on steroids to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. It sounds it's amazing. It's a great sound. It's evocative. It's cyber rocks, like... When you use pan flute, right? It's Who awesome. doesn't love a good pan flute? Cyber pan flute. Cyber pan flute. Yeah. But cyber pan flute. That should have been the album title. <laughs> Damn it! Nothing really hits those frequencies if you don't use that. Yeah. The cool. It's like underused. The cool thing about all those digital synth patches is that they're hitting all of the frequencies at once, which is uh, which is very which is something uh, I think Wolf Parade does as well. Just oh, maximum yeah. sa- saturation, you know. Yeah, totally. But yeah, that whole world of like choice, choosing sounds and MIDI, it's, I mean, that's why I'm so drawn to piano because there's no, there's no choice. There's just like whatever, whatever sound you make with the instrument, yeah, that's what you're stuck I, with. I, I feel like I must have said this on this show in a different episode at some point by now, but like I always think of this Brian Eno quote where he's talking about just like a, a standard drum kit, like it's basically like antiquated technology in a way, right? But why is everyone still using it? It's because it limits your options so much that you can just play it instead of thinking about 10,000 different snare tones, 10,000 different kick drum mm-hmm. tones. You yeah. can just get there and play it and you can just make the music. And there's always going to be this appeal to this, like these limitations that give you a certain like world to work in, you know? Yeah, event that that has to happen with every project at some point. Like the the choice has to stop, and you just move forward with whatever you've got. Yeah, and actually, that kind of leads me to something, Arlen. Where I'm curious how much your setup has changed because I feel like 
this album has the most sort of uh, like digital, uh, like, you know, like kind of ancillary drum stuff on it. I'm curious, like, if your setup is much different now than previously. Yeah, I, I completely changed my setup to make this record. So I had a Roland SPD-SX, like a sampling drum pad uh, that I've had for a while um, that I just kind of used for some really basic, you know, a couple of sound effect kind of things. But this record, I re, I put it in the same place I put my rack tom. So it kind of became like a centerpiece of my kit, just kind of like an extension. And so, yeah, this record, I, I kind of just dived right in to kind of expand the, my palette uh, with what I could do and, and a lot of ideas too of like you have your acoustic drum kit which sits in a certain space uh, like kind of in the room and to be able to you know go into this drum pad this and, and have this like much either like tighter sound or be able to completely transition the song into a completely different space was really interesting to me. Uh, so I kind of really got into that with this record and just kind of having like a totally different thing and a different way to play uh, play the drums and uh, and just whatever, have a, a whole different range of sounds for each song. So it was, yeah, it was, absolutely. A, it was a lot of fun. So yeah, like Forest Green and stuff, I kind of swapped back and forth between playing the, you know, the SPD as like, as the kit basically, and then going to a live kit. So, I mean, the big challenge is just going to figure out how we can pull it off live and make it sound kind of more seamless. But uh, we've been doing some of these songs already. But, uh, yeah, some of the tracks we haven't played yet are kind of much more involved, uh, where, like, yeah, there's almost no acoustic kit on some of these, you know, some of the parts of these songs, and I'm really curious to see how this is going to work live. Nice. It's kind of like what Spencer was talking about earlier, of just, like, it keeps it fresh, and you're kind of pushing yourself. And Yeah, it's something I always wanted to do, which was, you know, kind of get off the kit. Um, and just we were just kind of thinking when we were making this record of, just a new way to evolve the band. And uh, for me, it was something that I saw as just like, okay, I've got this piece of technology here that I haven't really used that much. Uh, It's just always kind of been off to the side. And if I make it uh, right kind of centerpiece with my rest of my kit and just start, you know, throwing in samples of like, you know, like an 808 stuff or, or whatever Lindrum. And I guys kind of downloaded a bunch of samples and started kind of building kits um, yeah, absolutely. That'd be really cool, and put some effects on it, and then take these songs into a kind of different space than what I've done in the past. So it's kind of fun. I love the Lindrum. The Lindrum, yeah. That's that's Prince's favorite drum, I believe. Yeah, it's the perfect snare sound. Yeah. <laughs> totally. So you guys have to start doing uh, Prince covers now. <laughs> Apparently, yeah, yeah. He liked that drum machine so much that when they, uh, I think the the second revision of the Lindrum, Lindrum Two, uh, he was the first. The like non-technician to have that drum machine, like he had the beta version of it, and apparently, oh, he, me. and and apparently, like the day he got it, he ended up writing like or whatever. So the story goes, like ended up writing between ten and fifteen songs with it, <laughs> which is kind of, which is kind of I could kind of relate to that, just like being excited about a piece of gear and using it as a inspiration, you know, like. Yeah, like when Doves Cry is, it sounds like it was uh, written to just a looping drum machine. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Or like something like Kiss that has like no bass, that that has no bass guitar on it, right? It's just yeah. it's guitar, lend drum, yeah. tuned, tuned toms maybe, kind of filling out the yeah, bass Yeah, tuned kick like, drum. Tuned kick yeah. drum, yeah. Super cool. Yeah. Super I, d- cool. I love the story, the the lore behind that song where the, the record label was like, this is a great single, but you got to add bass. And he's like, no fucking way. And they're like, no, you have to add bass. And he was like, no, I will add if you want, like, you don't get the record if this isn't the single without bass as is. <laughs> and they were like, okay, fine. And they put out the single and it went to number one, like right away and stayed number one forever. <laughs> I just love that. It's, it's, it's some, so affirming as an artist, you know. Some fucking yeah. suit, like telling Prince 
his song isn't good enough like, to put bass on fuck? it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I just yeah. love it. Uh, it's like yeah, uh, I took it to a focus group and need some bass. You know, like yeah. what the fuck. I just love the hardball of playing. Like, well, well, no, you either can have the record as is, or I'm walking away. Yeah, that's cool. As, as he should, because he's fucking Prince. That's how you guys need to start treating Sub Pop. Like, you're either going to put out our album of Prince covers with uh, no bass <laughs> yeah. on it, or we're walking. Yeah, exactly. That's always been our relationship with Sub Pop. Just com- total hardball. They all just absolutely just a- hate us, and we <laughs> yeah. hate them. Just like, we should just do an album of the reinterpretations of what the bass should have been on Prince albums and yeah. submit that. Just all bass. <laughs> yeah, just, it's all the missing, bass. Yeah, the missing pieces of Prince. <laughs> They're actually an easy listening record label, and they've just been getting bullied by all these bands for 30 years. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they just wanted to put out a smooth jazz and like Yamaha DX7, like sort of relaxing meditation music, and uh, everybody's yeah. just been pushing them around. Then Kurt Cobain came along and just fucking. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Listen this, up, uh, lame stains. Uh, you <laughs> losers are going to put out this record. I call it grunge. This is a new type of music. <laughs> yeah. He played that first chord and it just blew him away. Their hair went back yeah. and everything. Yeah. Like the, the hair um, got super long and greasy. Twisted sister videos. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> they were wearing suits. And when the song was <laughs> over, they looked down and they were wearing um, cut off jeans with like. Uh, black long johns underneath and like plaid uh, flannel shirts and they'd all grown goatees. <laughs> and we're stoked on it. And we're stoked on it. Uh, Arlen, I wanted to say talking about your drums, uh, it occurred to me as hearing, hearing you talking about it, like I really like the way that it's never just electronic drums. When you do incorporate them, it's still with the real kit. Like there's always some element of the real kit that you're incorporating. Cool, yeah. Which keeps it like, keeps it organic. It's, it, you know, it's like you've added a bionic arm, but you haven't gone full robot. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's cyborg. Imp- yeah. It's a cyborg kit. Yeah, you know? it's a yeah. cyborg kit. It's still, it's still some flesh there. It's still a little like, a little heart. Yeah. And maybe, yeah, it's, it's maybe even. Maybe even a soul somewhere deep down. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I'm crushing and I th- my I enemies. I think that's important to not, for as a rock band, to not go full electronic. Yeah, it's nice to kind of open up a few options, but keep this like, uh, I don't know, the same sort of core that you've had. There's this band from uh, Philadelphia called Palm. And the way that their drummer's been playing stuff lately is like, the full acoustic kit, except for the floor tom, is only a sample now, sort of with the other samples on like a rolling thing. Right. And I always thought that was like really fascinating to only get rid of the floor tom from <laughs> the acoustic kit. Like, it's a very specific decision to make, but it's yeah. cool to have that kind of like leeway. Wait, so they only they kept only the floor tom, or they got rid of only the floor tom? They got rid of only the floor tom, and everything else is still. But there. and is the sample of a floor tom? Yeah, yeah. Huh. And they use I plenty of other samples too. That but. seems like a if you're looking for a specific tone, it's hard to tune those. Yeah, I Maybe think that's exactly that hard, what they were thinking. Like they just wanted difficult. like a really resonant, like full floor tom. <laughs> like and just like why fuck not just it, let's it, just buy the software. Yeah. Fuck I'm tired of trying to tune idea. this thing. <laughs> trying to think, um been the better part of a year since you guys recorded this stuff. So do you have like do you have a certain amount of distance from it or does it still feel like new enough where you are figuring out what it is? Hmm. Uh, well, like creative, not like in terms of playing it, but just like what it, I mean, like as a record, do you have a clear idea of, uh, does it make sense? Like what it yeah. is kind of in the world? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. The song, I, I mean, the, the song for me, like the songs individually, uh, even after we've recorded them and put them on a record, they only really, the puzzle piece kind of fits in when we played them a bunch on stage. That's when they become, I mean, just for me personally, like the record and then the individual songs are something totally different. Cause I know that they're going to evolve when we play live, but honestly, like I only feel like I can like the song is done and I can access it or like see its edges when, when we, when we've been on the road for, you know, maybe a week or two weeks, 
there'll be a moment where it just like clicks and I'm like, okay, this is this song, you know? Yeah, for sure. Like I definitely feel there's a disc, like it feels like we made that, this record like forever ago. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why this feels like a lot has happened in this like span of time. And, uh, I always feel the same way with records too, where, you know, you're in this process of making a record and you're really deep in it and you're really excited and it's like, okay, and you're getting this done and you're working on it. And then it gets kind of finished and it gets mastered and you're like, okay, I'm glad it's done. And they kind of put it aside and then you kind of start having doubts being like, oh, we should have. Is this thing, yeah, should have. Like, is this thing any good? Like, what did we make? Made a big piece of garbage or something. And then, like, you sit on it and then it's like, you know, it comes around to put it out and you're just kind of fretting, basically, like, oh God, is anyone going to like this? Like, did we just totally make whatever? And I then, think that's like inevitable with anything with music. Like you're always the worst um, qualified to judge it when you've just made it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and especially if you sit on it for a while and it's like the excitement wears off a little bit of the act of creation. That's for sure. True. But then you, you know, but then you kind of wait and then it's like, okay. And then you, you know, it takes so long. It takes you know, six months or eight months from when you master a record for it to actually be released. But then when you, you know, when you get on stage and then people are actually reacting to your music in front of you and then you're like, oh, okay, like, you know, this isn't, you know, you know, you feel that reaction and the the energy from the crowd of people reacting and having, you know, enjoying things. And it's not just a bunch of people staring at you. Uh, And it's like, oh, okay, we did do something that's, you know, that's interesting. And and it kind of get back into it again. You get get connected and you get re-excited about about what you're doing, but that uh, that that period between when you like master a record to when it actually gets released, I find it's a little bit agonizing. It's like, you know, and you do all this other stuff too that has nothing to do with making music or creating playing music. It's it's a really weird weird time. It's like this kind of black hole. Yeah, and you you kind of wonder what's going on. You're like assembling assets, you know, like you're you're putting like together a... and artwork and yeah. I, don't, I feel like what we're doing right now, getting the songs ready to play live, is such a different process than getting the songs ready to record. I mean, because it is. Mm-hmm. And and when we re- we recorded the album, you know, a full year ago now, and then it gets, for me, kind of like emotionally put away. As soon as something is mastered, I mean, speaking only for myself, I don't even listen to it again until we have to get it ready for tour. Um, yeah. So, my perspective of what the record is and what the songs are changes completely when we're doing this thing of like, okay, how are they going to be live? I'm not really thinking about the record anymore. But I don't know if that changes how I feel about the record itself. It's hard to say. I don't really think about records once they're done. Or I, I You're try not like, actually. Oh, I wish I wrote a song about the re-election of Justin Trudeau. <laughs> no, I, I actually actively uh, try not to think about them. I try to just put them away. May, yeah, I think that's smart because then you get the distance you need to like have a better opinion of what they are because yeah. now you have the distance and. Yeah, there's a weird period where they don't really belong to you anymore. They're just sort of a thing that's out. <laughs> yeah, in the. It's a In real. Ether. It's such a relief when a record gets released. You're like, okay, this it doesn't belong to me anymore. Exactly what you said. It's like, I, I can't control the life, the the lifespan of this thing anymore. Yeah. So the moral is, don't listen to a band's new record because you're stealing it from them. <laughs> yeah, let them keep it for themselves. No, no. The the moral is every, just let a you're band taking their work once. from them for yourself. No, the moral is free us from this record. Please yes, listen to it. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> take this yeah, off. Take of it my away hands. from us. Take it away from us. Yeah. We're we're just gonna ruin it's it. It's a burden. Yeah, don't yeah. relieve us of our burden. Yeah. I think Alex, what you're just describing is Lauren Hill. Where Lauren Hill's like, I haven't made an album in twenty years because if I want to make music, I'll just show it to my family. <laughs> she rocks. She's yeah. late to every show or cancels. Oh and yeah, by like hours. Yeah, she is has uh, never paid her taxes. And an incredibly She's talented her life. person who's also very just weird and I think the only way a band can tell if a song they've made is good or not is, or to have any idea of is good is to think back to when they were first writing it, like the like the very day 
the very hour that the thing got written. Because so much of listening to music or so much of like how you appreciate music is like uh, comes down to sort of the element of surprise, for lack of a better expression. Like when you you just, you literally don't know what's going to happen next, and then the next thing that happens like pleases you, and you're like, "Cool, I like this song." Um, but for a band like that, the part of that goes away like almost immediately after like a week of like rehearsing and this thing that you've written and then you know what's going to happen next. And that's when you start to lose perspective of how it's going to be heard by someone outside yourself. It's it's yeah. almost impossible to imagine that you have to just like, then you have to just sort of like superimpose this element of like surprise that you can only imagine uh, other people hearing. Yeah, it's like saying a word a hundred times in a row and the word has no meaning exactly, anymore. Exactly, exactly. But someone else has never heard this word, so when you say the word to them, they're like, damn, that's yeah, a cool mm, word. That's the perfect word to describe that situation. And you're like, oh. Yeah. I don't know. So us trying to think about, like me trying to think about songs that I've already written and whether or not they're good, it's just like, it's such a fucked up concept. Uh like relatively quickly after writing the song, like all you can do is like think back to when you wrote it and whether or not you were like, like sort of try to remember how excited you were in the moment. And that's probably a good gauge of how other people are going to feel. For sure. I think maybe to kind of bring it back around to where we started, uh, you guys have been practicing. You're about to get on the road in like a couple of days here. Um, I saw Arlen, you had posted on Twitter, the, um, like your whiteboard for songs you're going to play, and you had the little ghost for Expo. That's right. So that brings me back to my first comment of saying this album is like uh, Expo <laughs> because you guys are not going to play any of that album. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's replaced it. No, Expo, uh, Expo. Well, what's uh, interesting... Oh, sorry about oh, no, Expo and, and this album. Uh, I was thinking of is how they are actually really quite different in like... Because remember, when we made Expo the approach was we were really into like, there's so few overdubs on Expo. It was really like we were in all in the same room together. Everything was lo- super live off the floor. Um, it was really minimal. Like we were recording with our friend Howard Billerman, um, who's really quite from the, like the Steve Albini school of producing and recording, which is, For which sure, is about yeah. like the, you, you know, the, the studio is like a, is like a docu, you know, is, is more like a documentarian kind of approach. You're trying to capture the band and their thing, and there's very little artifice. Where yeah, definitely. Where this record is like, you know, was a lot of artifice. Uh, we really kind of pushed production in a, a really different way. Uh, to the point, like against the day, it's you know shocking to hear, but it was actually like my drum parts were like more assembled in the in the computer than played, which is, I think that's the first time we've ever done that. Yeah. Um, it it was just kind of more of like a fun. It was like, okay, let's just do something that we've never done before. And just, just, you know, let John kind of work his magic. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. So it's, it's kind of interesting because yeah, to me, production wise, there are really two different philosophies making that, those records. Um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but yes, for sure. But yes, the, the expo is 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 a ghost. Expo is for this. Expo this is dead tour, for yeah. this touring cycle. Uh, we didn't even with Dante. We only had you know two or three songs off that record that we wanted to play live anymore. Anyway, there's something about that record where the songs just weren't lending themselves to the stage. Well, some of them are super fucking hard to play. Yeah, and are super long. <laughs> like Cavo Sapien. Cavo Sapien is fucking brutal. Someone that, uh, online was like, why them. don't you play Cavo Sapien anymore? It's like, because I have to move my hands so fast for like seven straight minutes. Seven I just, minutes. Yeah. In, in yeah, the, why don't you play it if you like yeah, some? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> that like was in our, Direction of the Moon. In Remember the that song? We, 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 that yeah, song's just complicated. Yeah, I don't know. It's so Very fucking Like The drumming is like, it's like playing like, triplet 16 notes for like yeah six minutes straight and yeah. it's like it's, we're basically oh. that's a good we're song, too though. lazy like we're song. too lazy to play it's super Expo. fun you know, <laughs> it's fun to, yeah. to it's a lot of work it was fun to make it was fun to write but that record is our rush hemispheres you know r.i.p neil but like that yeah that you know when rush made hemispheres they're famously like we wrote something that is almost too complicated to record um 
they're much better musicians. Yeah. yeah. But so, now yeah. that Dante's oh, out of the band, we now have like a, a legit excuse to just not have to worry about those songs. Like Dante's gone <laughs> yeah. and he played all the styly guitar shit. So Yeah, yeah. We wrote another were, I think record. Our songs that, too, like for us playing live, they gotta lend themselves to be able to be played within a window of about four or five beers. Yeah, and if it's like, yeah, that's okay, if you're like getting over three beers and the, you know, it's like, can this song be pulled off? It's like, okay, we're in the danger zone. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, maybe, maybe we find something else to play. So maybe um, for the next time you guys tour, the way to sort of arrange the whiteboard is uh, arrange each song by beer number. What's the maximum <laughs> beer count on this song? Yeah. <laughs> and this so work out a set It's list so fucking big. dangerous because the beer count on some of those songs is like twenty five, like some of the old apology stuff that we've played a hundred times, like the really easy ones. Yeah, we could do those. So you could you hit us over the head show. with a, like a lead pipe, and we could be like, <laughs> you could still play. Yeah. yeah. Half conscious <laughs> with blood trickling down. The song with cheek. the maximum beer count is Louie Louie, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. true. Yeah. We have some Louie Louie equivalents, I think. So you do an early set with the harder songs. Right. Then you drink like 20 beers and then you do apology songs and Louie Louie and then call it a night. Sounds, like right. sounds like we Robert just, Pollard's way of working. We should just line up, <laughs> take all the songs we can play right now. We'll put them into a big set list ranked like least amount of beers to most amount of beers and just drink a beer every time we finish a song till we get to the <laughs> hardest or to the easiest and mm-hmm. we'll see how how well this works. That'd be, like, be a good set. I bet you that'd be really good. That'd be a good game show, like a TV show where you have a different band each time and they have to keep drinking beers throughout the set really quick. Yeah. That'd be this good goes test back of... to your Olympic training thing, Spence. It's like that that's the kind of thing, you know, that's the real look behind the curtain. People don't know. You know, we're out here at the cabin, you know, we're out here at the studio, surrounded by snow, and we're drinking 50 or 60 beers each a night, uh, <laughs> like staring at the whiteboard, you know. Just trying to get, just, just doing our fucking jobs, man. Just doing our jobs, basically. Get off my back. Yeah. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm doing my job. Yeah. Doing it for the fans. It's, it's rock and roll, dude. It's for work, man. <laughs> You know, I do want to play Cabo Sapien again one day on stage, but like a dumbed down, like half as long version. Just like hit the pleasure centers of the song and put it away. But yeah, uh, that sounds good. Yeah. You should, because it's fun doing stuff like that. Like we were saying earlier, it's nice to like rewrite the song. Sort yeah. Of. Yeah. And we do do that. We have been doing that uh, to some extent. And we'll probably get into more. Now that we're down to just three of us, we can work really quickly. That's something that the three of us do well is like not uh overthink things too much and we can actually bang out ideas pretty quickly and that's nice it's been nice to return to that yeah you need to get snowed out of the studio for three days yeah and then just rush in there and really quickly be like all right a- no time to <laughs> screw abc around. one two three let's get this done yeah so I, I i killed the conversation with my bidenism there <laughs> no, it's cool. I think ABC one two three. Let's get this done. <laughs> you know, if you want to be if you want to be Santa Claus, you got to work like an elf. So. Yeah, copyright Dan Beckner. <laughs> yeah. If anyone says they yeah. told you they said that first, exactly. Um, but yeah, thanks for stopping by. I mean, do you guys have any other thoughts on this? Uh, I don't know. My thought bank's pretty empty at this point. I'm just excited to 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 play this stuff in front of people and have you know. Uh, have the record finally uh, go out in the world and achieve its own life. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, like true. seeing one of your children like go to college or something. It's like, okay, yeah. you're all grown up now. The marketing cycle has begun. It's like, that's get right. out there. It's a big know, world. Earn Papa some money, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to shed a single tear as I, watch, uh, as I watch the album walk out the front door with a knapsack on. <laughs> and the album will be way, way less sad to leave than you are. To watch it go, won't even really understand the emotional weight of the situation. No, but it is—it's true. Don't you dare touch my album. (laughs) Whatever you do to my album, you got to do to me first. (laughs) (laughs) You want to play me? You want to play me? You play both sides of me? (laughs) It will be fun to play them live. It's a rare moment for any band where you get to play new songs in front of an audience that also knows them and has just learned them and every, everyone's kind of excited about the new thing, that'll be fun. 
I guess that's going to happen in like less than a week. That's yeah, right. a couple of days. Yeah. That'll be cool. So you're going to come on stage. Um, first thing is knocking on heaven's door. Obviously, yeah. yeah. November rain, Cavo uh, Sapien. Cavo Sapien. We'll each have had our um, allotted 60 beers. 60 beers. Yeah. <laughs> and then when the, uh, just the base of When Doves Cry, reinterpreted by Wolf Parade. <laughs> then It'll be a really yeah. great <laughs> set. Yeah. And, and then, then the we'll let, and then we'll have a computer play against the day, in its entirety, all the parts <laughs> as we walk off stage. You guys, tour riders, just like twelve thirty packs of beers. <laughs> twelve thirty packs. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Three three hundred and sixty beers. It's good. I like no they food. come in thirty packs, man. Yeah. Just some yeah three hundred sixty beers and some deli slices. Yeah. Just to take the edge <laughs> off. Wrap the deli slice around the can. <laughs> yeah. Finish the can, then you just have a snack. Oh, right that's there. classy. Yeah. That's, that's, and yeah. it's warmed up because uh, yeah. you've been holding it in your hand. You know? Your, you your a, little meaty, meaty mitt. Body temperature. <laughs> yeah. hand, I call them hand slices. They're good. <laughs> the condensation from the can is on the meat now, and it's you got a little bit of like, it's like a 1% ABV ham now. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like kombucha. <laughs> Deli slices and kombucha are exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, on that very important uh, note about uh, you guys' lifestyle and diet, I think uh, we've kind of hit all the bases here. Yeah, thanks for having cool. us. Cool. Hey, thank cool. you for thank you hey, for talking for to us. us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Everyone knows that the life is so serene and what's